Welcome to the Andy Griffin Show. Wake up! With your chance to sound off, give your opinion, and tell us about your wild conspiracy. It's on. It's now. It's here. The Andy Griffin Show on News Radio 890, 949, KDXU, Southern Utah's News Talk Leader. Right now is when you probably are expecting the Andy Griffith show theme, but we're on a gag order right now, so we're going to play some reggae music, uh, non-licensed commercial music. So I don't understand what he's saying, but uh, welcome to the program. I'm Andy Griffin. Thanks for tuning in today to KDXU for the Andy Griffin show. I am used to the sunshine streaming in the studio right now. We have a uh, bank of windows that faces to the east and uh i'm used to the sun just shining right in here but uh not today it is cloudy as uh my guest coming on the show said leaden skies uh, uh, i am happy to introduce today uh, uh let's see what a tw- two decade plus veteran of television also a professor uh smart guy a guy that taught me a lot throughout my career my mentor my my own dad is on the show rod griffin and rod how you doing man good glad to be here Glad you're on the program. Uh, Rod is a faithful listener to the program every day. I when's the last time you missed a show? It's been a while, huh? I don't think I've ever missed any. <laughs> That's incredible. And uh, when, when Mom was still alive, you and her used to listen every day. It's funny because you both had your own iPads, and timing wasn't exactly the same. That's right. So you guys would be t- five or ten seconds off of each other, but you would always be always be listening to the show. And I, I really appreciate that. That's It's good to know. You're welcome. When I uh, was a young man in radio way back, and uh, it doesn't seem that long probably for you because you're a little older than me, but for me, uh, it was 30-something years ago, uh, I, that one of my professors told me, he said, the, the key to radio is you need to talk to one person. Not, don't, don't try to talk to everyone. That won't work. It sounds bad. Just pick one person and talk to them and tell them about whatever it is you're doing. And so I picked you. I've been talking to you all these years, Dad, so... Oh, that's good. I'm glad you're talking to me. <laughs> and I still do it, only you're actually listening now. <laughs> For many years, you didn't listen when I did all those ball games, and you lived out of town. And I was talking to you anyway. But uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, I I think, you know, most of the audience of this show is 40-plus, uh, many of them 60-plus, uh, some of them 80-plus. I doubt, though, there are too many listeners on this program that are older than you are at the 86 years old. Uh, in fact, we, if you're older than 86 and you're listening to the program today, I'd sure love to hear from you. We're going to take some strolls down memory <laughs> lane and, and uh, kind of talk about some of the old times and things that uh, I wasn't alive for or wasn't aware of when I was alive uh, with my dad, Rod Griffin, on the program today. Uh, again, thanks for coming on. It's a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad you're finally giving the geezers a little bit of equal time here. <laughs> what do you mean? I have Seth on almost every day. He's a, he would qualify as geezer, I think, although you're quite a bit older, what, seven or eight years older than he is. But, um, And I'm sure we'll hear from Seth in a little bit. Uh, just a programming note, Wednesday through Friday this week, it'll be best of the Andy Griffin Show. I will... Uh, not be live on the air. We'll be playing some pre-recorded shows. I apologize for that, but uh, honest truth is, uh, Cherry Creek gets mandatory two days off between Christmas and New Year's, plus the New Year's uh, observance is Friday. So uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I won't be here live, but we'll we'll have a program on on the air anyway with with my voice. So uh, let's talk about uh, your youth. You were born in 1935. Uh, so when when the U.S. got involved in World War II, you were what seven about seven years old or so. Uh, I was six years old when Pearl Harbor took place, and I do not remember it. 
but I do remember uh, my dad had a bakery in American Fork, and next door was a drugstore. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, we would accumulate enough of those little plastic tokens to equal a penny. So I would go next door to the drugstore with my tokens equaling a penny to buy some candy. Mm. And I looked on the uh, counter they had there, and they had a, a card that said, Remember Pearl Harbor. And there was a little pearl on the card, or imitation pearl. And that's the first time I realized that Pearl Harbor had some significance. And that would have been at 1940, probably 1942 okay. or so. You were just, just a little kid. Not a little kid. Seven is not a little kid, but a kid. Uh, for sure. Uh, as the war got going in the United States uh, and, and we got involved, there was rationing involved. There was, you know, collecting of scrap metal and things like that. Do you, re- do you have much memory of all that going on? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was it was the whole country was involved in that war. And it was a very patriotic time. And we were in great danger. We some people don't realize how close we came to actually losing. In World War II, especially in the early years there. Uh, and the whole country really was involved in it. We school kids would go out and gather scrap metal from wherever we could find it, pile it in the schoolyard. There was a pile probably 40, 50 feet high in our schoolyard of scrap wow. metal to use for making uh, guns and tanks and munitions and so on. And we gathered, believe it or not, uh, milkweed, which they said could be used to make parachutes. And those yeah. are just, just weeds on the side of the road, the milkweeds. Yeah. Hmm. And apparently the fibers in it were used to make parachutes. Wow. Wow. Did, did well, what was the, I know you were really young, and it's hard to gauge the national psyche when you're seven or eight years old, uh, even up to 10 years old. But what was the feeling in the United States during World War II? Do you remember? I, what I remember most is everybody collectively were behind what was going on. There was no objection, nobody saying, no, we shouldn't be in this war or anything like that, because we were attacked. And, you know, we were justified in being in that war. And there were 17, 16, 17-year-olds just clamoring to get into the armed services Hmm. so they could go and help protect our country. Did you know kids that went off to war that were in your neighborhood in American Fork? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course, they were older than me, but Mm -hmm. I do remember, and they had... You know, they used to put stars in the windows when somebody had one of their children in the war and they were killed. Uh-huh. And so they had a gold star in their window. And there were a lot of windows that you could see with those stars. Hmm. I was uh, pr- probably at seven, eight, nine, ten years old. It probably did what was not something you really spent a lot of time dwelling on, but something you were aware of. And at later in life now, you look back and you go, wow, that, that was some pretty serious stuff going on. Yeah, and you know, all of our information came by this media right here. It was radio. We didn't have television, and uh, so we listened to the radio a lot. We even looked at it a lot. Yeah. And uh, I remember D-Day. Uh, I would have been about eight years old, uh, nine years old, I guess. And I remember on the radio, they made a big deal about the Allies invading the beaches in Normandy, and they rang on the air. The Liberty Bell, really? and that was that was kind of a big deal. You could hear the Liberty Bell ringing. That is that is really cool. Uh, what was there? Uh, this is a dumb question, but uh, Utah Beach was one of the beaches that that they had to storm. was was part of D Day. Was there any relation, uh, any feeling about Utah Beach and, and you being in Utah? 
No, I don't remember that. Okay. I remember Omaha and Utah Beach were the two main ones there, and and it was in the news a lot. But you didn't think much about right. that, you know, at that time. What, what did it? Did the war be, be you know being uh, okay? You're about six or seven when it started. You were about ten when it ended. Did it make life harder for a, a, a little kid, or was life easier, or was it kind of indifferent? Yeah, it, things seemed to be pretty normal. Our, our young lives went on as normal. Uh, we, of course, had to participate in things like the, the rationing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when my mom would send me to the grocery store, she had to pull out the proper ration stamps for me to get the things that were uh, rare, like the sugar, the milk, things like that, that uh, were hard to get at that time. But if you had a ration stamp, at least you had the ability to buy a certain amount of it. Uh, not a very large amount. Mil- millions of people died in World War II. Uh, of course, the Holocaust. What, do you remember the information coming out about the Holocaust when they started discovering the camps and what the Germans were actually doing? You know, the only thing I remember is the Nuremberg trials. Mm-hmm. And it was all coming out during that, and that was right after the war, 1945-46. Uh, uh, but I don't remember any information about it before that time. It uh, even at ten years old, you were probably uh, pretty, pretty, um, pretty shocked, pretty amazed at how cruel one race of people could be to another race of people. I would imagine. Yes, everybody was. Uh, fast forward a little bit. The Korean War, not that far after World War II. At this point, you're a teenager, uh, and uh, you know the the. I think the national spirit is still there. Everybody's pretty patriotic at, at this point. What was your mindset at maybe 17 or so years old when the Korean War got really rolling? Well, they also had at that time they had the uh, the draft going, mm-hmm. and I was getting to be draft draft age, uh, and. Me and a number of my high school friends and associates decided we would join the National Guard so okay. that we could be available if we got called up uh, for the Korean War. So we joined uh, in uh, May, I think it was, of 1953. About a month later, the war ended. Uh, so that, that was good timing, I guess, on our part. The uh, the the. I've had people say, well, oh, they're, they're trying to, to, to dodge, you know, service or whatever by joining the National Guard. Quite the contrary, because National Guard units, even now, still get called up all the time for whatever specialty it is that unit is good at. And, and I, I'm sure that was a possibility for you guys. Yeah, we were an engineering company, but we were actually trained for combat as well. As a matter of fact, they called us combat engineers. Combat engineers, huh? So we were ready to go if they called us up. Uh, you were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were part of, uh, uh, building roads in Utah, including, is it Soldier's Pass? Yeah. Uh, that was kind of neat. Of course, I was the personnel sergeant, so I sat behind a typewriter while the rest were doing the building. <laughs> but yeah, we did, we built that road over Garthman Pass. Garthman's Pass. And, uh, several other roads and bridges just, uh, to keep our skills up in, in being an engineering company. Okay. So they, these weren't roads where Utah, you know, the governor said, hey, I need a road here. These were, we need to keep working on what we're good at so we can keep good at it so that when the time comes and we're needed, then we're ready to go. Yes, and of course, most of this took place up in the mountains. Yeah. And so once in a while, we got snowed on <laughs> in our sleeping bags, you know, and oh, things like that. But it was oh, all part of it. sounds cool. Uh, somewhere in amongst there, you found time to uh, find your sweetheart and get married. 
1955, you and uh, and my mom, your sweetheart Jean, got got hitched. She was uh, <clears throat> 16 at the time, and I have now I have a 20 year old daughter and an 18 year old daughter, and they're way older than 16. But I can't even imagine them having gotten married at 16. Well, people said it would never work, <laughs> and we were married for 65 years, so it worked. It it definitely worked, and you had a couple of good kids, a couple of rotten ones, but that's that's okay. <laughs> uh, I won't say which is which. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, how how was, uh, you know, we get through the Korean War, and then come the 60s, and that's when you started having your kids. Actually, the first one, I think, was 58, but at this point, you're heavily involved in raising children. Uh was that a difficult time? I know our country kind of went through a couple of crises in the 1960s. Yeah, it was. Uh, things were changing. Uh, the, the country in the 1950s was a whole lot different than by the end of the 1960s. A lot of changes took place. A lot of, uh, I don't know, you call it rebellion, uh, mm-hmm. or at least people wanting to do things differently than they'd ever done before. Do you remember much about the Vietnam War when that got going in the 60s and then the U.S. involved in the late 60s, early 70s? Yeah, you, you think there's controversy now in our country and people are divided. Uh, they really were that way in, in the Vietnamese War. And I think most patriotic people uh, still supported that war, even though there were a lot, of, a lot who didn't. Mm-hmm. But uh, still, the majority of the country was, was, I think, behind what we were trying to do there, which we thought was stemming the, the spread of communism. When, when, when that all started really to take place, you were just barely older than that generation, the, the Woodstock generation, the, the, you know, the, the free love and no war and peace all the time uh, generation. You were really more a child of, this, of the 50s. You, know, uh, 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 you grew up in the 50s. So for you, you were able to look at it with the perspective of, okay, I'm a little bit older. I understand life a little bit better. Did you, as you looked at these young people, and most of them were young, you know, 16 to 20 years old, who were, were rebelling in the 60s. Uh, what was your perspective on them? Were you, did it make you angry? Did it make you, I mean, you talk about the, the, the country was quite divided. Uh, we were, and, you know, it, for those of us who were sort of of a conservative bent, you might say, mm-hmm. uh, when people started uh, growing lots of facial hair and long hair and, and all the... Uh, uh, Free love and all that sort of thing was going on. Woodstock, you know, and so on. Uh, We were kind of shocked to see all that going on because when we were growing up in the 50s, it wasn't like that. Things things changed quite a bit, didn't they, in the 1960s in this country. Can you compare, you talked about the, the divided country. Can you compare the 60s and what was going on there with what's going on right now? Is there any comparison or is it just a completely different world? No, I think... uh, that's probably when political divisions did begin to get pretty serious uh, because of the Vietnam War. Uh, and it was just as bad then, I believe, as I recall. It was as bad then, maybe even worse than it is now. Mm. Uh, I think the country is more, probably more united, even though the political parties <laughs> aren't. Yeah. But the country is more probably than they were back in the late 60s, early 70s. Maybe the biggest difference uh, between now and then is we have all the Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and TikTok and all those things that uh, kind of highlight some of the divisions. But uh, 
Yeah, back then there were major protests going on in the 60s. All right, let's uh, rewind a little bit back to your single days. You had a couple of buddies you used to pal around uh, with. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Gordon and Eldon? Not your sons, the <laughs> other the other Gordon and Eldon. Well, we, we were in the... Uh, we went to school together, of course, and we were in the National Guard together. And uh, sometimes after our National Guard meetings, uh, exercises, uh, we would uh, kind of go out and have a good time. Uh, <laughs> when uh, one of our group, there were three of us, and when one of them had a date, which we, they often did, the other two uh, tried to do everything they could to disrupt that that date and uh, some strange things happened but that's it, what, that's it was what good all friends fun. do right that's what good friends do it's a good thing we were friends <laughs> there was one there was a couple of different stories i remember you telling one of them involved escaped fugitives uh tell us can you tell us that story yeah we were in our it, it was just after our wednesday night national guard meeting and and uh we were in our fatigues and uh Gordon and I went up to Eldon's place. He lived on a farm up in uh, in Manila, in mm-hmm. Utah Valley, and um, he was out with his girlfriend. So we were going to booby track it, trap his house. We did. We put uh, tin cans piled up across his driveway and across his uh, walkway in case he parked in front of the house. And uh, then we hid in the ditch and waited for him to come home. Well, it was just it just happened that same night that there were two escapees Uh-oh. from the point of the mountain, uh, the prison there, and they had a manhunt going on for those two escapees. And here we are wandering across the uh, countryside here with our fatigue uniforms on. Hiding so, in a ditch. <laughs> hiding in a ditch. <clears throat> so, yeah, we ended up getting stopped in a roadblock and uh, almost arrested until uh, a... Uh, policeman from American Fork who knew us came by and said, oh, those aren't the fugitives, but let's put them in jail overnight anyway. <laughs> you, you spent the night in jail? I didn't realize that. No. They, no. they finally let us go, but uh, <laughs> it was close. Man, oh, man. Uh, did, did, were there any lessons learned that night, or was it just a, another night of uh, you know dodging a bullet? Well, apparently we didn't learn too many lessons because that kind of frivolity continued for, <laughs> for another year or two now, how how long did you uh, how long did you stay friends with those guys i know you were lifelong friends but uh, they're both gone aren't they uh yeah you know it's been so many years now and and we kind of all went our separate ways and sometimes you you just hear or get a news uh article or somebody sends you an obituary or something and you find out that your old friends are gone. Hmm. And that's always sad. You're uh, 86 years old. You you joke around all the time that, uh, well, I'd hang out with folks my age, but there aren't any left, uh, <laughs> apparently. Uh, but uh, do, do, in all seriousness, is, is there a certain loneliness with being 86 years old? Because you know there aren't that many people that are your age. Well, in St. George and in southern Utah... Uh, all of Washington County, I think there are a lot uh, mm-hmm. still geezers like me around. Uh, <laughs> but it's family that, you know, you, you depend on your family when you get older. And they are your friends and the people you associate with and so on. 
and we have a very good and a very close family. One one thing uh, that is uh, uh, honest truth is uh, your kids are getting old too. I, I know you have a couple of them in their sixties nah. now. Uh, I, I'm still in my fifties, but uh, I'm not a. Of course, I had some medical issues a couple of weeks ago, and they kind of put a scare into all of us. But uh, yeah, when, when your kids are in their sixties, that no, that, that kind of tells you that uh, you're you're probably getting up there, huh? <laughs> I guess it does, but. It, they still seem like kids to me. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? That perspective. I have, uh, you know, I have five kids, and uh, they're they're just my kids. Even though they're grown ups now, they're just just my kids. And of course, uh, one thing that you never told me that I had to learn the hard way is uh, it's hard to be a parent when your kids are little. You know, when they're five or seven or three or eleven or even teenagers, it's actually harder to be a parent of kids when they're grown up because you have zero input and you see them make mistakes and you want to fix it and, and help them and do it for them, but you can't, you're not allowed. They have to make those mistakes on their own. And that's tough. Well, and you still worry about them. I yeah. made a lot of trips to the hospital a couple of weeks ago and yeah, you did. snuck in in some places, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I, you still do that. I think you had a good rapport with the, uh, the hall monitor because you were able to get past her most, most of the time and, and not count as one of my two visitors. Well, I, I had to, <laughs> Try to look like a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I, one day you came in. I think it was a Sunday. You came in in your suit and tie, and you did look like a doctor. You looked like you were, you know, maybe a retired old doc just checking on somebody. So, all right, let's uh, let's get a weather break in. I'm talking with Rod Griffin today, taking from some strolls down memory lane. Rod is 86 years old. He's in to tell some stories. I want to ask him a little bit about a program that uh, is called Road Scholar now, but uh, he was a. a I don't know, the teacher, I guess, lecturer for Road Scholar for quite a, a long time, director. We'll talk about that and more. Plus, we'll take your phone calls right after this uh, weather timeout. We're interactive on The Andy Griffin Show. Call in, Call in at 673-5890 or text in at 435-467-5842. Let your voice be heard on The Andy Griffin Show. <laughs> Trying some new music. I'm not allowed to play the Andy Griffith theme right now, so this is kind of fun. Sounds like something's about to happen. Welcome to the Andy Griffin Show, 934 on KDXU. I'm Andy. Thanks for tuning in. Again, we'll do best of a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday this week as uh, they're, they're twisting my arm saying take the day off. I'll still be in here doing some uh, items, but uh, not allowed to be on the air for the next couple of days. But uh, we're here now, and I've got a special guest on the air with me for the first time. Uh, Rod Griffin, my dad, is uh, here on the program. And uh, we're going to we're gonna have two worlds collide here. We're going to let Seth on the air to uh, pontificate with Rod. Hey, Seth, I found somebody older than you to be on the air, buddy. I'm offended. <laughs> but my goal, because Seth in the Bible lived to be 913, <laughs> and I've been be- taking better care of myself than than uh, before, and so I'm going to go for a 1,000. Okay. I, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. You can try. Uh, my, my, I was born when my father was in the Battle of the Bulge. Oh, uh, cool. Uh, as a cryptographer, he was taking photographs, and anybody with a rifle on the ground would shoot at him. But even though he had a camera? Uh, up in the sky. 
Oh, oh, he was up in. Oh, I get it. Okay, he was in a Piper Cub that they were shooting at. Right. Wow. So, I'm, I'm kind of fighting the battle of the bulge right now. So, exactly. You know. Me too. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to cut back on all those uh, holiday treats. But one story that I remember reading in the newspaper is a story of a man back in the time when there was real pocket, and he would buy everything he was going to buy during the day with a dollar bill. Okay. And then keep the change in transaction, he would hand him a dollar bill. Really? And keep the change, and on the way into the house, he would dump it on the in the rain barrel uh, that came down off his gutters. Okay, so just his extra change, he would throw it in the barrel, all right. Yeah, okay. And so it would fill up, he'd put a wooden top on it, he'd drain it, and he'd take it down into the basement, into the coal cellar. Okay. And when he died, there was 10 or some number of barrels filled with pocket change. Really? Probably thousands of dollars, huh? No. No? Because it was silver, it was worth millions of dollars. Millions, wow. And that... It was the largest collection of silver coins ever located. The dimes, the quarters, the halves, the dollars, whatever, were accumulated and stored. And a dollar, when I was growing up, was a lot of money. That same dollar today, depending upon its condition, with less than an ounce of silver in it, is worth 30 bucks. Wow. So what I could buy for a dollar, I remember gasoline when I was a a teenager, 16 cents a gallon. Wow. You you could buy um, five or six or seven or eight gallons of gasoline for a buck. For one dollar. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, try to do that today. I think last time I picked, uh, filled up my pickup truck, it was seventy dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so people, uh, there's no because of the Federal Reserve and because they've taken all value from our money, there's no limit to what it what it's going to cost for a simple telephone call like this. Yeah, you're right. They're they're, they're killing us, aren't they? They are, and we allow them to continue. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, well, Seth, uh, real, real quick, do you have any questions for my dad while you've got him on the air? Um, uh, are we talking weather? Well, we were going to go there next. My dad was a longtime weather, television weatherman, so if you have any weather questions for him, that'd be great. And I do. I think they're weaponizing the lexicon, the... Uh, we're talking about a cyclone bomb that's supposed to explode all over Utah tomorrow and that the barometric pressure is going to go up um, or go down one millibar per hour for 24 hours. Why are they, instead of saying when I was uh, young, we had a snowstorm, now we're going to have a cyclone bomb, and I'm concerned that Everything is the end of the world because of words of fear. Cyclone bomb. Yeah, that does sound scary, Seth. Do you know anything about that, uh, Dad? Well, we're just talking about a low-pressure system here that where the isobars are close together, meaning it's really low pressure. 
And uh, those isobars being close together means they will pass by rather quickly and the pressure would drop rather quickly, but also would rise quite quickly after the thing was passed. So you're going to get a storm and then it's going to go by and the sun's going to come out. And we're using scary words instead of a snowstorm. They're calling it a cyclone bomb or whatever. Uh, t- talk a little bit about, to me, as a young kid, now I was born in Las Vegas. And we lived there uh, my first six years of life. That's my perspective. Uh, the reason we were in Las Vegas is Rod Griffin here was the professor. He had a temperature. He was on billboards. He was on TV all the time uh, forecasting the weather in Las Vegas what was being a weather forecaster on television like back in the 1960s and 70s? Well, I found out two things when I was uh, doing the weather in Las Vegas. One was the weather was really easy to forecast in Las Vegas because it didn't change much. Yeah. The other one was nobody cared. <laughs> nobody cared about the weather in Vegas? Nobody cared. Hmm. Why, why do you say that? Why, what do you mean? Well, they're all in the, in the casinos day and night yeah. and uh, doing their or whatever proceedings, and uh, the weather didn't seem to be important to them. Now, that's a whole lot different in Utah. It was a whole lot different in Texas when I did the weather down there. People cared about the weather because it affected their lives, but it didn't seem to affect their lives much in Las Vegas. Vegas is such a bizarre town because it feels like there's the there's the people that live there the that maybe don't even work in the casinos, that there's this community, and then there's... The inner Vegas, the international community that, like you said, they don't care about anything there in Las Vegas except for their gambling and their casinos and their shows and and, and, and things like that. And, and so for me, it's it's like Vegas is really two different places. Did you feel that as a TV, TV guy? Definitely. There, yeah, there was the, the community. And, of course, this was 50 years ago, but there was the yeah. community uh, with homes and churches and neighborhoods and all that. And then there was the Strip, or the Casino Center. Yeah. And uh, they were just two separate worlds. How did you end up as a weatherman on Channel 3 in Las Vegas? <laughs> well, I never intended to, but uh, I uh, was teaching at, uh, at the college there. UNLV. Uh, UNLV, and yeah. uh, I won a National Science Foundation Science Teacher Fellowship. Really? And uh, this was kind of a big deal. And so they came to interview me from Channel 3 in, in uh, Las Vegas. The person they sent to interview me was the person that did the weather on their station. And as we just sat and talked to each other, he discovered that I knew a lot more about the weather than he did. <laughs> so he said, why don't you come down and talk to our uh, a news director and uh, talk to our manager and see if you, you can do the weather for us. And uh, I was really reluctant, plus I was going on this fellowship for 15 months. But when I got back, they, <clears throat> they contacted me again and said, come on down. And so I did an audition tape, and next thing I knew, I was on the, on the air. And it was, it, took a lot, it was a learning curve, a long, difficult learning curve to go from teaching a class to talking to a camera. It's that's fascinating to me because you were an educator, you were a teacher, a professor, uh, but TV, especially you know weather and sports and things like that, that's a whole different animal. It's a whole different world. How did you know what to do? You said you did an audition tape. Did did they just hand you a microphone and a script, or what? What did you do? No script. No script. <laughs> microphone. No script. Wow. Uh, so I just had to wing it, mm. but uh, I 
you know, I had watched all the weathercasts and I knew what they did and I knew what I knew about uh, the subject. And so I just uh, went with it and it became very successful. We were, uh, we won uh, prizes while we were there. Uh, we, uh, we really enjoyed doing that. It was a good time, uh, but, you know, all things come to an end and, when I got old and fat and ugly, they decided they didn't want me on TV anymore. I'm I'm kind of exaggerating because <laughs> a little bit <laughs> we did that for seven years in three different markets. Yeah, and uh, it was it's hard to balance two careers at the same time. I was doing the weather in the evenings and I was teaching in the daytime, and it kind of wore me down. So when I was on Channel Four in Salt Lake City, I decided enough was enough, and uh, went back to my full time teaching. And uh, I'm not, I have no regrets. I don't think people know this or realize this, but yeah, he was on uh, ABC4, Channel 4, right here in Utah uh, for a couple of years, right? Uh, You were working with Clayton Bruff. I don't know if folks remember Clayton too much, but uh, uh, yeah, you were part of the weather team there. You guys even wrote a book together. Yeah, and we were uh, were both teachers, and so we had similar interests. And in the summertime, we would actually teach teachers from the... uh, Utah uh, science group hmm. and uh, we would go up to Park City every summer and teach the teachers uh, about our, the subjects that we had some expertise in. When we watch TV news, uh, you know, one thing maybe to pull back the curtain a little bit, people don't realize that the, the sets that you have, it, it's, it's really, it's all for show. Uh, they're, they're actually pretty flimsy. Usually these TV sets that uh, you use a green screen, that was later in your career. You had the green screen. I know you had some experiences with the green screen. Now what, what, what that is, is they, they put behind the person is a, a literally green screen and they had decided that's the color they would use to be able to, uh, put graphics, chroma key, I guess, put graphics behind you. Uh, the only problem is if you wore something about the same color, as the as the green screen, uh, it would disappear completely. Yeah, when I was doing the weekends in the, Channel Four uh, and teaching during the week, uh, they remodeled the studio and changed what was the blue screen to a green screen. So I showed up. Uh, this was October of 1982. I showed up uh, with a uh, green three-piece suit on, and they had changed the wall in the studio to green which means nothing would show up except my hands and my head (laughs) on the screen and i didn't have time to change and it didn't get another change of clothes down in time and so i went on the air that way and uh, i was just a face and a pair of hands doing the weather in front of a map Uh, but we had a real cool uh, clever anchor man named bill oltman at the time mm-hmm. and when i get through and by the way everybody was laughing their heads off in the studio but when i got through bill said well you know halloween is next week and i think that was a really clever halloween trick that you did just did for us professor thank you <laughs> and we got away with it got away with it awesome uh one of the things that uh i really indelibly inked in my brain was uh uh, the little uh, lapel stickers, lapel felt uh, smiley faces that you used to wear when you were on TV. Uh, it became kind of a a thing. Uh, kids, elementary school kids all over were making these things because 
you would wear, basically you would wear a lapel, a, a smiley, an em, really an emoji back before emojis were a thing. You would wear it on your lapel, usually reflecting what the weather was going to be like that day. Yeah, we had frowns and smiles and all kinds of other expressions on those, and we'd stick them to my lapel, and uh, it did become a thing. And I would go around to elementary schools or junior high schools and lecture to them about the weather and have them make the little lapels, and then I'd wear them on the air, the, the little smiley faces. Uh-huh. Were, there, were there any that stick out in your mind all these years later now? Any that? They, oh, man, that was the best one. No, I, you know, there were so many, but uh, the kids were really clever. They came up with all kinds of uh, expressions. They'd make them on paper, and then we'd put some uh, scotch tape behind them and stick them on my lapel. And uh, they got such a kick out of seeing the thing that they made on television. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would that would that would make make a kid's year, I think, something like that. All right, I got to get another commercial break in. We're talking with Rod Griffin today. That's my dad, uh, eighty six years young, still kicking it old school style. Uh, Dad's doing a great job. Uh, real quick, a uh, couple of uh, uh, quick notes and uh, a couple of commercials, and then we'll be up to back to finish the show. Let's talk about Joe Shoney for a mo- moment. Joe Shoney is with New American Funding. Uh, he's a loan officer. His specialty, though, is, well, customer service, taking care of you, making sure that you're happy. Uh, he's not going to leave you in the dark. You're going to be apprised of what's going on the entire way. Joe Shoney, online reviews. If you go to New American Funding's website, he's a review, like 1,500 of them. He's 4.9 stars. If you go to Google, we're at 32 reviews right now, and all 32 of them are 5.0 out of 5.0. Perfect score online on the Google reviews. It's Joe Shoney with New American Funding. He's located right downtown, 162 North, 400 East in St. George. Best thing to do, though, is give him a call. He'll get you started. 435-319-8214. 319-8214. Joe Shoney is NMLS number 121041. I just don't know what to do with myself music-wise since I can't play the Andy Griffith theme right now. So got a little bit of ragtime going on here. Anyway, Andy Griffin Show, thanks for tuning in today, 9.51, almost 9.52. It's been a lot of fun hanging out with my dad today and during this holiday season. Learned a, learned a lot of things. Of course, most of the stories I've already heard, uh, but uh, many of you, most of you hearing them for the first time. And, uh, Dad, thanks for coming on doing a great job. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be with you this morning. There's a program that I knew I never even heard of it until you started working. After you retired, you went to work for a place called Elder Hostel, which then became Road Scholar. Uh, and again, I I had no idea it even existed. Can you tell us what it is? Because I don't think I think a lot of people have no idea. Yeah, I didn't either until uh, I think it was your wife that called me and said there was an ad for a geologist at uh, what was then called Elder Hostel. And uh, I went down, and I had retired in 97 uh, from full-time teaching mm-hmm. and moved to southern Utah, so I wanted something to do. And so I went right into them, and they put me right on as the first geologist in that program. Uh, it operates out of St. George, and it's sponsored by—it's actually a department of Dixie State College, Dixie State University. It was then called just Dixie College because at uh-huh. that time it was a junior college. Uh, or a community college. But anyway, they put me right on, and, and for 18 years, until I was 80 years old, I worked for them, and we would take people from all over the country 
out to see Utah's wonders, the mm. five national monuments or five national parks and some national monuments. And we'd go to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, to Lake Powell, uh, Rainbow Bridge, and things like that. It was a travel program, uh, and uh, it's the best job I ever had. It's like teaching, and I did teach uh, geology, but it's like teaching and then uh, doing field trips all the time. Teach one hour, do field trips for 10 days. You know, that nice. was wonderful. Nice. What? What? Uh, it's weird because I'd never heard of it. You'd never heard of it. I don't think people know about this program. Uh, basically, you were getting people from New York, New Jersey, Florida, wherever, and they would come here. Uh, they would pay, and not not it wasn't cheap. They would pay though, so, so that you would take them out to these different places. Uh, it, it's it's a cool program because it wasn't just tourism. It was it was tour, tourism and learning at the same time. It was educational, and that's why they changed the name to Road Scholar because it was educational. And uh, Doug Alder used to always say, "You're out here to see our red rocks." Yeah. Yeah, I love them. We've got a great view of some red rocks right out here, right out, right the, out window the window, here, for sure. Uh, tell me some of the places you would go. I know you went to Grand Canyon, usually North Rim, or did you go South Rim too? North Rim. North Rim. Okay, where else would you guys go? Well, we'd go to uh, first of all Snow Canyon. That mm-hmm. was our beginning because oh, yeah. it's pretty scenic right there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we'd go out. We'd go to Zion Canyon and uh, to Capitol Reef. I love Capitol Reef. And uh, we'd go over to the Moab area and go to Arches and and to uh, Canyonlands. So this Dead was all on, 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 like, buses, Dixie State buses? Yeah. Sometimes we went in vans, okay. uh, 15 passenger vans. But most of the time we were in these big, beautiful uh, 45, 48 passenger buses. And it was good transportation. We always had good places to stay and good meals. It was a, a very good program. And for people who like to travel and like to learn, uh, it was perfect. So, so this Road Scholar is is a national program. So, if I wanted to go, say, up by Yosemite, there might be a college up there that has a Road Scholar program. Yes, uh-huh. most of them are sponsored by colleges, uh, and uh, you could go almost anywhere in the country and find a Road Scholar program. What was uh, what was your main clientele? Were it uh, freshly retired people or, or people that are a little bit older? Or what, what what were the kind of people that were involved in this? Originally, when it was called Elder Hostel, we dealt almost exclusively with people 55 and older. Mm-hmm. But then it broadened out, and uh, they changed the name to Road Scholar, and they take any age now. Mm. But predominantly, those are the people who travel. The, the retired people are the people that are 55 and older. And that was most of our clientele, and I think it still is. I think there was a, wasn't there a kids and grandkids program, too, where, where they would bring kids with them? Intergenerational, yeah. yeah. Uh, people would bring their grandchildren and uh, do a, a trip. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of hectic because grandparents don't keep quite as good a control over their grandchildren <laughs> as parents might. And it got a little hectic from time to time, but it was still a good program. Now, did you say you were the first geologist ever for the program here in St. George? Yes, I was the first one when they were just getting the program organized. Originally, we went around on school buses, uh, wow. painted white. <laughs> but then they got the big, be- new, beautiful buses that they have today, and they're still operating. Uh, I went to a dinner just this month where they reported on their programs and so on. They're still 
going strong, even though they were was a little setback with the COVID. Yeah. Yeah. But they're still doing uh, trips, and it is, I think, a very good program. Phenomenal. Uh, and I think we need to get the word out, folks. If you want to go, it's not about, I mean, you're not going to go jet skiing, although you do get on a houseboat. Uh, but it's it's more about uh, going and learning about the uh, area. Uh, I know you have passed the torch on. My brother now does, and his wife do elder hostels or road scholars as it, as it were after after you and my sweet mom uh, retired stopped doing them and uh, he's they, they have a good time yeah they're enjoying the trips the same way we used to it's uh, it's a good program and there there's a place of operation uh, is on uh, 100 south between uh, first and second east right here in downtown st george and they have a whole building there that they operate out of. They have they actually have places where people can stay overnight before the program begins. Uh, kind of a used dormitory. to be the old girls' dormitory. Yeah, that is that is really cool. And again, I think it's something that ninety five percent of us have no idea even exists. Uh, uh, is there going to be any adjustment as the school transitions to a polytechnic and the name change and stuff, or will it still just be same old road road scholar? Well. Uh, in the meeting I went to uh, before Christmas, it sounded like the program was going to continue pretty much as it's been. Of course, there are always are adjustments made, but uh, it's still going on. And uh, I really enjoyed my 18 years going out on those field trips. It is recommended, by the way, if you do an elder hostel, be healthy enough that you can hike and stuff. I know that I know you had some real challenges through the years of people who went on the Road Scholar but couldn't hike or couldn't hardly get around, and, and that made it a little little more difficult. Yeah, fortunately, most of them knew what to expect, and they were mostly active people that went on these trips. But once in a while, yeah, you'd find one that had difficulty. Well, we've run out of time. Uh, my dad, Rod Griffin, has been here. So many great stories. There. We could probably fill 10 hours of programming with some of the great stories from your life, but I sure appreciate you spending a few minutes with us. Well, thank you, Andy. It's just good to be here this morning with you instead of sitting doing a crossword puzzle and listening. (laughs) It's time now for news. Thanks for listening. Best of Andy Griffin coming up the next three days.